You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. just invite you as it is spring and it's just a part of this Lenten season to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 17. That's what we're looking at this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, the page number is there on the screen. And if you're using a phone or a tablet and you want to use the YouVersion Bible app, you follow those instructions. It'll take you right to the scripture that we're looking at this morning. Every Sunday, as part of our regular rhythm of worship, we recite together the words of what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And if you don't remember where we take that prayer from, it's actually from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. But if you've ever really paid attention, this is not actually the prayer of Jesus. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's not actually the prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer that Jesus offers as a model for us to use whenever we speak to our Heavenly Father. The context of this was the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus saying, okay, this is how you should pray. We refer to it as the Lord's Prayer, but it's not actually the prayer of Jesus. It's a model. Today, we are going to look at, we're going to reflect upon something that really is the Lord's Prayer. Recorded in John chapter 17, this is not a record of Jesus teaching us how we ought to pray. This is, and I'm going to get geeked up about it. I'm going to apologize for that in advance. This is a unique opportunity for us to enter very sacred space. As John enables us to listen in on Jesus' own personal prayer to his Father. Now, right right, right from the get-go, let's be clear. These are not the verbatim words of Jesus. I mean, John did not have a tape recorder when this prayer was first offered. And John also was engaged in this prayer. It was not like, Jesus, could you slow down? I didn't get that. But at the same time, remember, this is not something John just freely came up with on his own. All four Gospels, all four, reference the prayers of Jesus, both alone and at times in the presence of his disciples. And if you remember about John, something particular about John, John was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was part of his three, inner circle of three. And so more than likely, he witnessed the intimacy of Jesus' prayer life many times. But here, I mean, as you're open to it, I hope, here, he actually records for us what he heard what he experienced, what he remembered from that moment when he was privileged to witness the intimacy of the relationship Jesus had with his father. Taking up the whole chapter at 26 verses, don't know if you know this, this is in fact the longest prayer in the Bible. And we're going to contemplate it over the course of two sermons. But as we enter in today, let's not lose sight of what we are about to experience. I really want to set this tone for you, and I hope you enter into it the entirety of this morning. One of the things that God tells us again and again in his word, do you remember this? God tells us again and again, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? It's this understanding of it's impossible for us, you know, we like blow our minds to enter into the mind and heart of God completely. God's, we worship a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, and yet here, What we are about to look at together this morning and next week is a sampling 
Think about that. Of the deep, ongoing communication that passed between the members of the Trinity, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit while Jesus was with us on earth. And in the simplest words of our Savior, we're going to discover that some of the most profound truths in the revelation of God to humanity are about to become clear to us. Having set the stage, let us enter in. John begins by saying, after Jesus said this, we've been spending these last few weeks with the part that Jesus said, what's called his final discourse, his words, before he goes. He goes to be handed over to die. After he had said this, so after he had finished speaking, we're told Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. So again, picture this scene. Jesus and his disciples have been in the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, though, as he's been sharing his, his final words with his disciples before he leads them, has said everything he needs to say, and John tells us the time for explanation and discussion has ended, and Jesus now prays. Jesus stops moving. He doesn't keep walking. He stops in his tracks. He doesn't multitask, trying to save some time by praying as he continues to make his way toward his destination. No, John tells us Jesus stops where he is, everything else he's doing, and devotes himself, his full attention, to his Father. Jesus no longer looks to the earth or to his disciples. John describes it that Jesus looks up toward the Father. Jesus looks up to heaven. I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but this posture of looking up to heaven is the most common prayer posture Jesus adopted according to the Gospels, looking up to heaven. And I find this ironic because as we have this picture of Jesus looking up to heaven, we have this picture of the Son as he reaches up to his Father. It's, it's this picture of the freedom and obedience of a child, right? A child looking up to their mom or to their dad. And I find it ironic because this, which is the most common prayer posture of Jesus, is the exact opposite of what we teach our children and how we pray, right? How do we teach our children to pray? Close your eyes, bow your heads, fold your hands. Total opposite of this. And I wonder sometimes if that posture, and I know there's a reason for it, a good reasons for it, but I wonder sometimes if our posture affects our prayer life, if it affects how we view God as our Father. I wonder sometimes if bowing our heads, closing our eyes, and putting our hands down, if that affects our inability to see God as our Father. I mean, imagine going to your parents and reaching out to them like this. I mean, if you did something wrong or you're in trouble, you're probably like this, <laughs> right? But... Normally, when you go to your mom or your dad, you're not like this. You're like this. Mom, dad. Mom, dad. So just a, just a thought as even we begin of, what if you change the, pro, the posture of your prayer life? And maybe if we broke with tradition, and again, instead of looking down, looked up. Instead of our hands folded and our eyes closed, our eyes were open expectantly, looking towards our Father with the faith and obedience of a child. Maybe that would change the beginning, the, our relationship. Jesus looks up, John tells us. He looks up toward heaven and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you've been paying any attention in the Gospel of John, this idea of appointed time, the hour, has come up a lot. From the very beginning when Jesus, remember, turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, he tells his mom, my time has not yet come. His brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem and he will say, my hour has not yet come. When people try to stone him, not going to happen because his time, John says, has not yet come. But now, here in this moment, as Jesus stops, as he looks up to heaven and prays, he prays and says, says, this is it. My hour has come. My hour 
has come. The hour of his passion, the hour of his trial, the hour of his scourging, his crucifixion, his rejection, his execution. The time is now. Let me ask you a question. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you pray for? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you pray for? Would you pray for more? More time? A longer life? Would you pray for it all to be over quickly and painlessly? Jesus is going to die tomorrow, and what does he pray for? Jesus prays, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Think about this. When Jesus prayed this prayer, he knew he was going to die tomorrow. He knew he was going to be handed over and that he was going to die. And yet Jesus doesn't pray for more time. Jesus doesn't pray for it to go fast or to hurt less. Instead, he prays for glory. Glory for himself so that he can glorify his father. In fact, something you'll notice in this prayer is that glory gets repeated a lot as Jesus prays. In fact, we might even say that the theme of this prayer, the theme certainly for today, is a theme, the theme of glory. And so it begs the question. It's a word that we hear a lot, a word we use a lot. If this is the, the focus of Jesus' prayer, glory, it begs the question, what is glory? What exactly is Jesus praying for when he prays for glory? So we're going to spend some time talking about the, the English word glory. The English word that we use called for glory, it covers a variety of things. Glory refers to thanksgiving-filled worship. Glory can refer to a source of honor. Glory can refer to dazzling beauty. Glory can refer to a state of joy. And then going even beyond that, glory can be used as a verb, meaning to rejoice proudly. Here in the New Testament, the word that we translate into English is glory. The Greek is actually this word doxa. It's the word that's found again and again in Jesus' prayer. The Greek word for gl- we translate as glory is doxa. And if you're, you're into this kind of thing, doxa is the root of the English word doxology, which you sometimes hear in church, which means a hymn of praise. And in the Bible, doxa has to do with someone's estimation or assessment. Someone's estimation or assessment. And the word is only used positively in the New Testament. So that means this estimation is always good and honorable. To break this down, to give glory is to recognize the worth or value of something. In fact, in the Old Testament, we discover the epitome of glory is the supreme worth the infinite value of our creator of God's presence revealed. In the Old Testament, that's declared as the epitome of glory, to have the supreme worth and infinite value of our creator of God's presence revealed. And this insight comes to the people of Israel, specifically to Moses, after one of the people's biggest blunders. I don't know if you remember this story. It comes right after their creation and worship of a golden calf in place of the Lord. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. He's been gone a while. The people think he's gone. He's not coming back. And they go, hey, I know. You know what would be a great substitute for this God who just took us out of slavery in Egypt? We could make a golden calf and we could worship that. And when Moses comes back and when God comes upon the scene of what the people have done, he is so upset by what he sees, by what has taken place, that he, amongst other things, he declares, okay, look, if you actually think that what you've prayed, that thing is an adequate substitute for me in your life, then you know what? You can go on to the promised land by yourselves. 
I'll send one of my angels, but I ain't going with you. And the people, of course, begin to mourn. Moses begs on behalf of the people, Lord, you have to go with us. Please, angels are great, but your presence has to go with us. It's gotta be you. And if you remember this story, eventually the Lord relents and says, okay, I promise I'll come along with you. But then there's this startling moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the Bible. It's incredible. I mean, God has said, I'm not gonna go. Moses has bowed before God, begged, please, you gotta go. And God relents and says, okay, I'm going. But Moses doesn't stop there. Do you remember this? Moses doesn't stop there. He says, well, he actually dares to push God even further. He's like, Lord, if that's great. You say you're coming, but I need to see your presence in order to know that you're gonna go with us. And so then Moses says something amazing. He says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's reply is insightful. This is what God tells Moses when Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Here and then when it actually takes place, in that moment we learn that the glory of God is not just the physical presence of God. The glory of God is the character of God being revealed. As God declares, my glory is seeing my mercy, my compassion, my steadfast love. When the Bible speaks of God's glory, it's referring to the, the manifestation, the actualization of our creator's power, his wisdom, his goodness, his infinity through the revelation of his character. This is what Moses asks for. Show me your glory. This is what Jesus prays for, God's glory to be revealed. Beloved, I ask you, do you want to see God's glory? Do you want to see God's glory? Have you ever even asked in all of your prayer life, all the things you've ever prayed for, have you prayed to see God's glory like Moses did? Like Jesus prays here. Just to get you to think about this, have you ever wanted to see something because you knew it was greater in person than in pictures? Ever wanted to see something, experience something, because you knew it was greater in person than in pictures. Some of you know, some of you may not. I just got back from a trip recently, a trip to Japan. This is part of the reason why I wanted to go and visit what was, for me, that faraway exotic country of Japan in the first place. I'd heard about Japan. I've seen pictures about Japan, people who've gone to Japan, but I wanted to go and to experience it. You know, and I didn't just want to go look at the place of Japan and go home. I didn't want to get out, you know, land the plane, get out of the airport and go, oh, that's cool. I wanted to explore its countryside. I wanted to experience the rhythms of her traditions and her practices. I wanted to smell the fragrance of cherry blossoms. I wanted to taste the flavors of a distinctive Japanese meal. I wanted to fully immerse myself in the people and culture of Japan to know if this place, these people were everything I'd heard them to be or maybe even more than I ever imagined. Do you want to see God's glory? I ask you again. Have you ever asked to see God's glory? Not just to Dip your toes in the endless ocean of the Lord's infinite goodness. That's not what I'm asking you. Not just kind of landing a plane, stepping out of the airport and going, oh, it's cool. 
Have you ever asked? Have you ever prayed? Are you open to being fully immersed in the glory of the Lord? You might say, well, (laughs) what does that even look like? I mean, Jesus is praying this. How do we bask in God's glory? Well, the very first place we start following the admonition of Scripture is recognizing, as the Scriptures say, that all creation sings the glory of God. All creation sings the glory of God. All creation reveals the stamp, not only of his presence, of God's fingerprints, but also the calling card of his character. Stop, meditate, think about this with me for a second. The glory of God is on display for us in the multitude of the stars, the planets, and the universes dancing above our heads in the sky. Light years away from us, galaxies upon galaxies. Think about it. The glory of the Lord is the diversity of life right here on this big blue planet at both the macro and the micro level. Species of animals and plants we are only still discovering. Consider this, oceans and caverns and forests of such depth on this planet alone we have yet to fully penetrate and discover all the mysteries that they hold. The glory of the Lord is in the delicate complexity and resiliency of our human bodies. When's the last time you looked at your body to contemplate the glory of the Lord? The delicate complexity and resiliency of our human bodies and their ability to adapt, to reach, to heal, in the still not fully understood capacity of the human mind, in the capacity, the creativity and intricacies of the human person in what we call our heart and soul, the glory of the Lord is on display. We witness the glory of the Lord in the miraculous transformative events of human history that have extended and benefited life on this planet. God's glory is on display both in the achievements that have come through human hands, achievements like the eradication of diseases, the cessation of war, the affirmation of human dignity, and creation care, the promotion of justice, every effort to break down barriers and bring people together, the glory of the Lord is on display. And the glory of the Lord is also on display through the sacred milestones of human existence that result not by just human hands, but result by the very hand of God. Humanity's survival of a worldwide flood through Noah the dethroning, throwing down of the false gods of this world as the Lord rescued Israel from the bondage of her slavery. And of course, the the pinnacle, the ultimate, the day the world stood still and God himself came down to be with us in Jesus Christ. In case we missed it, in case we didn't understand what it was about, John even underscores this for us at the start of his gospel. When he tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Everything we know about God has re- that has been revealed to us has come. His self-revelation has come through creation, through history, through scripture. But the final revelation of the glory of God is revealed most profoundly, most completely, and most astoundingly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays the presence of the character of the Father, of the Godhead of which Jesus is a part, for which Jesus came all this way to show the world. He prays that that glory, that character, would be revealed, unveiled in all its fullness through him for us to see. 
If you've ever wanted to see God's glory, if you've ever wanted to be fully immersed, not just dip your toe in, but be fully immersed in the depths of the power and the wisdom and the majesty of our creator, our heavenly father, God turns to us and says, do you know my son? Do you know Jesus? And this is why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus to perceive, to penetrate, to immerse ourselves in the glory of God. Jesus reveals the Father's glory. God's presence, the Lord's character, are on display in Christ. God's goodness, his mercy, his compassion are fully disclosed in Jesus Christ. That's why we pay attention to every word he says. We watch everything that he does. We listen to everything that he tells us because it's not just about us. God's glory is being revealed to us. Jesus, in fact, in this prayer, elaborates on the glory he has been given on behalf of the Father. He goes on to pray this in the next slide. For you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet. It's really easy to miss this, but something really significant here that I want us to see. Something significant I want us to see as we perceive the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we've heard, prays for glory. Glory for himself so that he can glorify his Father. But as Jesus goes on with his prayer, we discover that Jesus and the Father do not seek honor for themselves. What I'm saying is God doesn't reveal his glory through Christ so that his approval ratings will go up. God doesn't reveal his glory through Christ so that he can gain more followers on Facebook and Twitter. God reveals his glory through Jesus in order to give his glory to others, to impart his worth, the worth and honor to his creation, to us. And the manifestation of this, the manifestation of the glory of God is a gift to us. The manifestation of the glory of God in others is the gift of eternal life. All things exist for God's glory, right? All things exist to reflect and share his presence and character, not to boost God's ego, but all things exist to be secured, to be enhanced, to promote life through the glory of God. And that's why the opposite is also true. Apart from our creator, creation is broken. Apart from our creator, life ends prematurely. We die. Apart from our creator, something vital is lost. And what is that vital thing that is lost apart from our creator? Glory. We can speak of glory apart from God, and many of us do. We love to talk about our own human glory. We can speak of glory apart from God, but glory apart from God, human glory is always fleeting. Our value, our worth, separated from our creator, fluctuate based upon our age, based upon our capacity, based upon our productivity, based upon our achievements, based upon our reputation. Human glory based on fame, fortune, or dominance always has a limited shelf life because money and resources eventually get depleted. Celebrity, however long you have it, eventually, inevitably becomes eclipsed by the next rising star. The influence and power we hold over others through our jobs, through our status in a family, whatever. The influence and power we hold over others is relative. It can and it does change over time. 
We were created for glory. That's why we're here. We were created for glory, the glory of eternal life. But life is finite. Glory is lacking when we break off relationship with God. The moment we tried to have, we tried to have life on our own, the moment we tried to do life on our own, the clock started ticking. The fuel began to run out. Because apart from God, there is no life. Beloved, apart from God, there is no glory. But the glory of God that, is, that Jesus comes to bring, that is not a human possibility on our own, eternal life is ours. The glory that we need, the glory that we were made for, the glory that we seek that is not a human possibility, Jesus comes to bring, and it is eternal life. And this begs another question. What then is eternal life? We throw that phrase around all the time. What is eternal life? And Jesus, as he continues to pray, gives us the answer to that question. What is eternal life? Pay attention as Jesus goes on to pray. Next slide. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, me, whom you have sent. Did you hear that definition? It's so sim simple, so easy. It's, it's so, we could pass by it and kind of nod our heads and go, uh-huh. But hear this. Eternal life, according to Jesus, as Jesus prays, is knowing the one true God, our creator, our heavenly father. Knowing God, which has been the supreme blessing of the Old Testament, has become realized in Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of God through our humanity. Therefore, eternal life is knowing our creator, our heavenly father, through Jesus Christ. Again, be clear about what Jesus just said. Eternal life is not living forever. And most times when I ask people what eternal life is, that's what they reflect back to me. Eternal life is living forever. That is not what Jesus prays. Eternal life is not living on our own, doing our own thing onward and into infinity. Living forever is the result of eternal life. But as Jesus defines it, as Jesus prays it, eternal life is a relationship. Knowing God in Christ and having eternal life is not merely some intellectual understanding about God. It's not even the feeling or sensing of the presence of the Lord. Knowing God and having eternal life is to be consumed by the character of God. The type of knowledge that Jesus is pointing to here is the intimate knowledge of experience. It's the intimate knowledge of personal engagement in a relationship. It's not knowing about God in Christ. It's to regularly experience, to daily engage God in Christ. And I'm speaking to you, church. I'm speaking to all of us because many of us, and we've talked about this before, still are settling for knowing about God in Christ. We know some things about God, but we are not daily, regularly engaging, immersing ourselves in this relationship. What Jesus is talking about here is like saying, I know my wife or I know my husband, or I know my children, or I know my parents. I mean, when you're saying that, you're not saying, well, I know about them. I know something about my wife. I know something about my kids. I can tell you a couple of facts and figures, some interesting, interesting trivia. I don't just know about those relationships intellectually, right? When you say you know your spouse if you're married, or you know your parents, or you know your children, you're saying you know them, not about them, you know them. You know their fears. 
You know their joys. You know what they love. You know what makes them laugh. You know what they hope and long for. You know these things because you know them intimately, personally. And why do you know that? How do you know them so intimately and personally? It doesn't come by reading a book. It doesn't come because someone gives you a Google search on the internet. It comes because you encounter them, you interact with them, you engage life with them regularly. To know God in Christ is no different. And yet it's so much more. To know God in Christ is to share in the person and life of God. It is to become in rhythm with our Creator's mind and heart with his desires and promises for his creation. It's to understand what makes God smile. Do you know what makes God smile? It's to understand what leads God to mourn. Do you know what breaks God's heart? Not what breaks your heart that you interpose upon God. What breaks God's heart? Do you know what breaks God's heart for this world? It's to know what compels this God we worship to speak and to act. And when I say it's even more than this, a little mind-blowing thing here, the life and person of God in Christ, different than any other relationship we have, the life and person of God in Christ that we're invited into is beyond time. It's eternal. Therefore, knowing God in Christ is to experience, even if it's just a little bit, Life beyond ourselves. Life beyond this world. Life beyond this time. To know God in Christ is to penetrate and to begin to understand, to get a taste for life everlasting. Life beyond the boundaries of sin and death. Life that's more than we could imagine or hope for. Irenaeus was a second century leader in the church and he's had a quote that I've always dearly loved. Irenaeus, who was a second century leader in the church, once said this. The glory of God is a human person fully alive. The glory of God is a human person fully alive. We are fully alive when we are in sync with our creator. We become so alive that our lives, our view of them, our understanding of them, our work in them no longer become finite. They become eternal. We live for God's glory and in so doing, we become more fully, more eternally alive. And the thing is, all this that I'm describing to you, all this that I'm trying to tease out for you from this prayer of Jesus, from the scriptures, all of this that we're just trying to get our, our, our hands, our arms around, this eternal life connecting to God in this way, we can't lose sight of this. This, this eternal life connecting to God in this way is not something we can manufacture on our own. This kind of living that we're trying to, dis, to just enter into, describing, is beyond our reach. I mean, the characters in a story cannot go beyond the pages unless the author of the story continues to write about them, right? Beloved, the good news, the gospel, is the author of life 
has become the word made flesh. God comes to us in Christ to keep our story alive. To turn humanity's epilogue into a new chapter. But this life is not something we can earn. This is not something we can manifest and manufacture ourselves. And again, I'm saying this to us because there are still some of us who are living this way. Even though you'll nod your head and say, yes, I know, eternal life is not something I can earn. It's not something I can manufacture. Many of us are still living practically in a relationship where we're trying to barter with God. You can't barter with God. Eternal life is not a merit badge. You can't earn this relationship by doing good deeds. Eternal life is not a promotion. It's not the ultimate employee of the month reward. Eternal life is the gift of knowing the Father and the Son. And let me also say this. If we're not interested in knowing God in Christ in this way, if you're content knowing about God, but all this other stuff, knowing God in Christ in this personal, intimate way, has no interest to you, then hear me and hear me clearly. If you're not interested in knowing God in Christ in the way that Moses asks for, in the way that Jesus prays, then you will not have eternal life. You will not have eternal life because you don't want it. That's what eternal life is. It's being in this deep, abiding relationship with God. If you have no interest in it now, why would you have interest in it when you die? If you're not interested in knowing God in Christ, you will not have eternal life. Put it another way. If you're not about, if your life is not about seeking God's glory in the life you have been given, then your life will end. You will end because there is no life apart from God in Christ. If you're still sitting here functionally knowing things about God, but truth be told, let's just be honest, you're living for your glory. If it's ultimately about you and no one else, do not kid yourself. You don't want eternal life. You will not have eternal life. You will die, and that will be all that you have because there is no life. There is no glory apart from God. We were created for glory. We were created for eternal life, but eternal life, the glory of eternal life is a gift extended us to us by the God who offers us the chance not only to experience it, but get this, to share in his glory. And as Jesus goes on to pray, he acknowledges that this, sharing God's glory, was his mission, to bring it. As he goes on, he prays, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus says, as he prays, that he's finished the work that his Father gave him to do. What was his work? To bring God glory. How? By teaching, reflecting, and sharing the character and will of the Father. How? Through speaking divine truth to power. How? Through acts of healing and inclusion. How? Through signs of the Lord's abundant provision. How? Through, of course, the final work that he is about to do, his gracious and loving sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of all sins, followed up by conquering once and for all death through his glorious resurrection. This is the work that Jesus has done to reveal the glory of done. All that he, the glory of God, all that he has done, all that he is about to do, seeks to reveal the value and worth of our creator, while at the same time sharing such glory, God's glory with all the world. So again, let me ask you this. If, 
God's glory, recognizing it and sharing it, was Jesus' life and goal. Then as disciples, as we who follow Jesus, our life and goal can be no different. Our life and goal has to be to reflect and share God's glory. Jesus specifically calls this out as he continues to pray. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Here, and as he goes on in this prayer, Jesus is going to assert that he has revealed the glory of God by sharing the words that God has given him to say, by shepherding, attending, caring for those whom the Father gave him. And then Jesus will go on to articulate how the glory of God continues to be spread as we obey the word of God, as we, like Jesus, do only what the Father tells us to do as we accept and pass on the words given to us by the Father, as we believe and trust that Jesus came from the Father, as we follow Christ, we bring God's glory by sharing his glory with others. In following Jesus, as we do the works the Spirit of God has given us to do, we glorify God with our lives. We not only reveal the incomparable worth of knowing Jesus to others, but we practically extend the transformative impact of God's love, grace, truth, and hope through Christ into their lives. You know, there's a word for living like this. There's a word, and it's worship. Worship. Worship is not only revealing the incomparable worth of knowing Jesus to others, but worship is practically extending the transformative impact of God's love, grace, truth, and hope through Christ into people's lives. This is worship. And the thing is, when we lose that, when we lose our capacity to look up, to receive, and to share, when we lose our capacity to give glory to God, we lose or forsake what is known as the capacity to worship. And when we lose the capacity to worship, we lose our humanity. You know, one of the biggest lies that's out there is that when we worship ourselves, we're magnifying our humanity. When we worship ourselves, we're lifting ourselves up. That's the biggest lie there is. When we worship ourselves, we're not magnifying our humanity. We're losing it. When we worship ourselves, we become inhuman. When we worship ourselves, we dehumanize others. We become what we worship. And beloved, we either become the glory of God, or we become as limited, as lifeless, and as dead as whatever we are worshiping instead of God. But on the other hand, when we start and finish by focusing on glorifying God, experiencing his glory, when our worship is centered in the recognition that all that is good and beautiful in us comes from God and is given by God, we come alive by God's grace and we begin to bear fruit. As Jesus talked about earlier, fruit that lasts, fruit that enables others to taste and see the life they were meant for, the eternal life they're being offered in Christ. The thing is, glorifying God through worship isn't something we do now and again in our lives. So many of us are used to saying, why are you here on Sunday? I'm here to worship. Check the box. But worship isn't something we do. One of the things, the tasks that we do, properly understood, our lives are to be lives lived in worship. 
thinking, speaking, and behaving so that the character of Christ is magnified, so that the glory of Jesus is put on display and draws those who do not know or have not heard into the welcoming embrace of their heavenly Father. This is what it means to flourish, by the way. This is why we follow Jesus. This is why we look to build relational bridges, not just relationships with other people, but relationships between people. This is why we are to be ambassadors for God's kingdom. This is why everyone is welcome here. This is why we love unconditionally. This is why we are willing to be stretched in order to grow. This is why we forgive others even when we have been wronged. This is why we speak kindly to those who speak evil against us. This is why we do not retaliate evil for evil. This is why we turn the other cheek. This is why we humbly seek to serve those who need help, to stand up for those who've lost their voice, and to sit down with those who are grieving, who believe they are alone. Because our lives are to be lives of worship, monuments for God's glory, becoming beacons of light, bearing the light of Christ, shining defiantly before the darkness of this world. All of this, the eternal life that we were created for, the glory of God that we were created for, it all begins, as we see today, with prayer. We begin by looking up to heaven and then asking, seeking, and knocking like Jesus for God's glory to be displayed in us, for God's glory to be displayed through us. I asked you earlier, do you want to see God's glory? And now I'm going to up the ante. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? Not just to see God's glory, but when's the last time you prayed for God's glory to be revealed in and through you? When's the last time you looked up and said, Father, would you be glorified? Jesus, would you be glorified? Would my words, my thoughts, and my deeds not only honor you, but would they reveal your presence to this world? When's the last time you prayed that prayer? We pray this way in order to live this way. And thanks to the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing power of the Spirit, we can live like that as partakers of the glory of God, not only enjoying God, communing with the Lord, yes, all of that, but also representing and sharing the glory of God's compassion, generosity, and hope in Christ with all creation. Beloved, God's glory is freely given in order to be freely shared. All things exist for God's glory. God's presence, his character, his life are meant to be reflected and extended with everyone. This is the Lord's prayer. This is what Jesus prayed for. May our prayers be joined with his, not just in what we say, but by his grace through everything we do in his name. Amen.